Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. It's April 17th, and it's a new podcast. And in this one, I'm going to talk about a a very difficult sentencing that I had about a week and a half ago with an Iranian-American woman who was badly manipulated by the Iranian terror regime and ultimately played a part, however unwittingly, to murder probably the most well-known Iranian dissident in the world who lives in Brooklyn. I'm going to get into that. It was really a painful sentencing, and I want to go through it. I I didn't want to do it last weekend because it was too soon, and I think probably wouldn't have been a good idea how uh, that soon after to talk about it. So I gave myself a week, got the transcript from the sentencing, read it, and here we are today. But I want to start out and talk about the Donald Trump indictment, my thoughts about it. I've read it. I've read the statement of facts that accompanied it. And I think it's, you can't just look at this as the indictment. You sort of have to look at this as everything surrounding it. I'm exhausted, by the way, of even thinking about his criminal case, mostly because it's a waste of time. And I know that Trump isn't winning the 2024 election, regardless of what occurs uh, with this criminal case. Now, I've explained time and time again on this podcast why he has no chance in 24. So I won't go into it again, but suffice it to say, he lost 2020. He got the Republican Party destroyed in the 2022 midterms, and that was a, a midterms that was seemingly impossible not to just roll over the Democrats. And now he's under indictment. He's got a, a civil rape trial coming up in a couple of weeks. He's got a multitude of other fraud and criminal cases on the horizon. And I'm not saying it's his fault necessarily. Some of it, a large part of it certainly is. But the bottom line is that from all of this, independents in the country hate him by a large margin. He's just too toxic to people who are in the middle politically. He has a very strong base of, I don't know, 30% of the country maybe, the MAGA geniuses. But everyone else isn't just lukewarm on him. They just hate his guts. So he's not getting elected. In addition, he did nothing during his four years in office to stop voter fraud, mail-in fraud. He didn't get voter ID done nationally. Even state by state, he should have pushed for it. He didn't stop ballot harvesting. So when I say that he can't win, I'm not saying there's a 1% chance. It's a zero. Joe Biden can barely string together words to make a sentence. He's opened the borders. His presidency will probably be the one that ushers in the end of America as the top world power. And I'm not just saying that. Just look at China. Do some research. This isn't even a question. And yet Trump can't beat him. Uh, Trump has also trashed Ron DeSantis so bad with his MAGA cult that DeSantis can't win the nomination or general election Maybe general election if he gets there, but I suspect that he will, uh, Trump will tell his uh, imbeciles to stay home and not vote for DeSantis. His ego couldn't bear it. Uh, And he's made it very clear, Trump, that he won't support DeSantis uh, and that he only cares about himself. And if you think I'm wrong, Trump claimed that Charlie Crist was a better governor in Florida than DeSantis. Crist is a Democrat who got destroyed in a landslide by DeSantis last fall. So if that's not enough for you, I don't know. I'll give you a little bit more. Trump also praised California Governor Gavin Newsom, that greasy, slimy guy with all the uh, hair product who doesn't realize that it's 2023 and not 1986. Newsom is clearly angling to run 
for president if Biden is unable to. I, frankly, I think he's unable to because, he, you know, as I said, he's, his brains are, uh, you know, strained peas. But he's careful, Newsom, not to bash Trump. Uh, why does he have to? Because Trump isn't bashing him. They're, they're both bashing DeSantis. And that just shows how dumb Trump is. He doesn't care about winning the general election. He's only focused on destroying DeSantis. And he's too dumb to realize that what he's doing, as I said, Gavin Newsom isn't bashing Biden or any of the potential Democratic nominees. And all this is just lost on Trump. And, and Newsom destroyed California, or at least what's left of it. 500,000 people have left the state in the last two years. Newsom has some, had some of the worst COVID policies, shutting businesses, schools, vaccine passports for a vaccine that doesn't stop the spread of COVID. California has the worst soft on crime district attorneys and the murder rate is constantly going up. The place is a cesspool of crime in its big cities. California continues to be near the bottom in the rankings of all states in terms of traffic, poverty, school performance, air and water quality, infrastructure. People, people can't even afford to live there. The high costs in housing have made the state unlivable, certainly for the middle class. The median home price in California is $600,000. The state ranks 49th in housing affordability. Only 20% of the population in California can even afford to own their own homes. This guy's running for president, and Trump doesn't bash him on any of this stuff. Newsom also created a task force to study paying blacks reparations for slavery that ended 150 years ago. They, in turn, this... Uh, his uh, task force came up with a proposal that every black citizen in the state be given a $360,000 check. That would cost the state $640 billion. And of course, there was no mention of how it would be funded by a state that doesn't have any money. Newsom's secretary of state, her name is Shirley, Shirley, uh, said, quote, if California can admit its sins and change the narrative, then there is a way forward for states and cities across the country. My response is, fuck you. Trump, on the other hand, says this about Newsom, quote, he was always very nice to me. He said the greatest things. He would say things like, oh, he's doing a great job. That's why I never hit him because he was so nice to me. This is not Saturday Night Live. This is Donald Trump who said those words. Do you realize, and look, for the kids that are listening, I, I apologize for the potty mouth, but do you realize how fucking stupid you have to be to support Trump? He supports a communist in Newsom, but he's destroying Ron DeSantis? We've already discussed his dinner with Nick Fuentes, an open white supremacist, a Nazi, and a, a happy Holocaust denier. What did Trump say about the dinner? He said nice things about me. I love when Trump supporters say dumb things like, Trump has learned from his first term. He's going to hire better people now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He loves Charlie Crist. He loves Gavin Newsom. He loves Nick Fuentes. He loves the communist president of China who only killed a million Americans. He loves the North Korean dictator who said nice things about him. He keeps on doing interviews with leftist reporters who hate his guts and humiliate him. And he keeps going back, just wind them up, smacks into the wall, wind them up, smacks into the wall. But he hates Ron DeSantis. It came out last week that he wanted to get Laura Loomer a spot in his campaign. Loomer is a complete mental patient lunatic who counts Nick F 
Fuentes as a close friend. Laura Loomer is a Jew who counts a Holocaust-denying, Jew-hating Nazi as a close friend. That's like Trump-level stupid. And naturally, as Trump tends to gravitate towards morons, he wanted to hire her. It took the well-known genius Marjorie Taylor Greene, an anti-Semitic lunatic in her own right, to let Trump know that in her own words, quote, Laura Loomer is mentally unstable and a documented liar. She cannot be trusted. By the end of the day, when it was reported that Trump was going to put Laura Loomer into his campaign, a high-ranking campaign manager for Trump confirmed that Loomer would not, in fact, be hired. So Trump clearly has learned nothing about who to hire. If you kiss his ass, he loves you. He hired a lawyer for his criminal case in New York who was roundly described in the media to be a loudmouth idiot. Once that news got out, Trump added a lawyer onto the team to take over the lead spot, as it was reported, because this person was new lawyer was thought not to be an idiot. The third lawyer on the case is a Hillary Clinton supporter. Trump gets it right every time. But as I said, uh, how dangerous Trump is because he destroyed Ron DeSantis, perhaps the best Republican candidate we've had in decades, an honorable guy, a brilliant guy, a fantastic governor. But Trump doesn't care what's best for America. He only cares about himself. And I'll explain. And and I've really got to stop talking about Trump because it's making me want to puke in my mouth. After the loss, the uh, 2020 election, Georgia had two runoff elections for senator. I'm sure you all remember that. The balance of the Senate depended on who won those two races, which is hugely important if you understand politics. Trump was angry that he lost the election, angry that he lost Georgia, and warned, and excuse me, and wanted all Republicans to claim that the election was stolen from him. And he practically told his supporters not to bother voting in the Georgia elections that were so hugely important to the country due to the impact that they had, obviously, on the Senate power balance. His allies did just that, telling crowds of Georgia Republicans before the elections not to vote in the election for the Republican candidates because they, quote, didn't earn your vote. Trump admitted afterward that he could have done more to boost voter turnout in those elections, but didn't because he was angry over losing the 2020 presidential election. This is a temper tantrum that cost the Republicans the Senate. That's just incredible to me. About his uh, supporters, Trump said, quote, they didn't want to vote because they knew they got screwed in the presidential election. And he admitted that the depressed GOP turnout cost Republicans control of the Senate. It was also reported that he told people that he was happy that the two Republican Senate candidates lost because he said they, quote, didn't defend him enough. It's only the Senate. It's not important. It's more important that Trump gets his ass kissed. And if you uh, don't tell him that the 2020 election was rigged, he'll support your opponent, not just tell uh, your voters to stay home. He'll tell your supporters and the country to, to support your opponent even if it's the worst far leftist on the planet. We've already discussed in podcasts when he was so angry at Brian Kemp, the Georgia governor, for daring to certify the Georgia presidential vote, which Trump lost. He was so angry that he endorsed Kemp's opponent, the dangerous lefty lunatic big mama Stacey Abrams, who ran for governor against Kemp. Trump said to a Georgia crowd, quote, I think she might be better than having your existing governor if you want to know the truth. Might very well be better, he said. Again, all that matters to Trump is Trump, not America. Uh, 
Now, going into the 2024 elections, the election really is won or lost over six swing states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, North Carolina, Arizona, and Georgia. And it's the independent voters in these states who will decide these elections because you've obviously got hardcore Republicans and Democrats. It's the people in the middle that make the difference. We've already seen how Trump screwed up Pennsylvania when he pushed Dr. Oz for Senate because his idiotic wife said Oz was famous because she saw him on TV. Oz famously then lost to a plate of spaghetti in John Fetterman, a legitimate vegetable. For real. Trump had a super MAGA a super MAGA uh, uh, candidate that ran for Arizona governor, Carrie Lake. She ran in a place where soft Republican John McCain was so special. What a shock. She lost as well. She was a bad candidate. And I happen to like Carrie Lake. I think she's smart. But she uh, hitched her ride to Trump. And, of course, disaster followed. And she's still, of course, not uh, conceding. And it's been, I don't know, 17 years. Trump cost Republicans both Senate seats in Georgia, and then a few weeks ago, he destroyed Wisconsin for Republicans. So keep telling me that he's changed, that he learned. Wisconsin had a hugely important Supreme Court election a couple of weeks back. The winner of the race shifted the power of balance in the Supreme Court to either Republican or Democrat, because it was three to three, and the fourth, a Republican, retired. Before the election, as again, as I said, Democrats hadn't controlled the Supreme Court in 15 years. This was hugely important, this race, on a number of issues, because things go before that court and need to be decided. And if it's 4-3 liberal, guess what's going to happen with those decisions? One of the issues is whether abortion will be outlawed or not. Well, you know where that's going now. In April of 2022, the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled four to three in favor of a legislative redistricting, the redistricting plan drawn up by Republican lawmakers, giving the party candidates in the legislature a bigger advantage with 63 of the 99 assembly seats and 23 of the 33 Senate seats leaning towards Republicans. So this is the kind of stuff that's important. And most importantly, the rules on voting in the 2024 election that the Wisconsin Supreme Court can set the rules for that election. The court's conservative majority before the election had ruled that absentee drop boxes that became common during the pandemic are now illegal. A lower court stopped election officials from filling in missing information on absentee ballot return envelopes. That, of course, is good for Republicans and bad for Democrats because they cheat. The issue will be decided, of course, after the Supreme Court election. So this stuff is important. The Wisconsin Supreme Court also ruled in favor of a law banning voters from having someone else mail in their absentee ballots or hand it to an elections clerk. That's, you know, ballot harvesting. That's the stuff that helps Democrats. Wisconsin was stopping that. So the election was held in, uh, in the Democrat who wildly outspent her Republican opponent. Why? Because Trump did nothing to help raise money. And the Republican Party as well did nothing to help raise enough money for the Republican candidate. But instead, Trump was not just not raising any money for the candidate, but he was spending campaign money, money from people like you and me, not that I would give him any money, but people that send in their hard-earned money to Trump and he actually spent that money for the hush payments to the hooker or the porn star, Stormy Daniels. He didn't take money out of his own pocket. He took your campaign contributions. Just nuts. Naturally, of course, Trump was thrilled after the election and the Democrat won 
And that basically is dooming any chance that a Republican can win Wisconsin in 2024. Trump is too dumb to realize that that alone uh, could cost him the election. He doesn't care because, he's, again, he's just, too, he's just too fucking stupid. This is what he said. Daniel Kelly, that was the Republican candidate. Daniel Kelly of Wisconsin just lost his Supreme Court election. He bragged that he won't seek Trump's endorsement. So I didn't give it, which guaranteed his loss. How foolish is a man that doesn't seek an endorsement that have, would have won him an election? That's what Trump wrote in his Truth Social platform. Why didn't Daniel Kelly seek Trump's endorsement? Because whoever Trump endorses now loses, as we learned last November. And Trump is so dumb that he forgot that he endorsed Daniel Kelly in a 2020 race for Supreme Court. And he lost that race too. But again, how do you brag about this? All he cares about is himself, not America. At some point, his dwindling base of morons are going to realize this. Regarding DeSantis, at this point, I don't think it makes much of a difference because I don't, I don't even believe that he's going to run. He just signed into law a ban on abortion after six weeks. What the hell is it with Republicans and abortion? Enough already. <clears throat> the country is pro-choice. It's not even a partisan issue. The, the majority of America is in favor of abortion. How do you put a ban on abortions at six weeks? Women don't even know that they're pregnant at six weeks. What does that mean, that they missed their period by two weeks? DeSantis is not winning any election nationally with that kind of stuff on his record. He's just not. He's not going to get any independence. And he's going to cost himself a lot of Republicans. If Republicans haven't learned from the midterms, the country likes abortions. Again, it's not a partisan issue. So to me, it seems like the Santos is clearly planning on staying in Florida for a long time because he got bashed so badly by the, the MAGA morons that he realizes he's not winning this nomination. So why bother losing it? But I digress. If we can get back to the indictment against Trump, and I, listen, I hate Trump, but it doesn't mean that the indictment is right. What bothers me um, the most about it is that it's simply not the kind of case that's ever brought by the Manhattan DA's office. And there's a, a, an accompanying statement of facts to the indictment, which I hardly ever see in a case. And it clearly shows that Stormy Daniels' legal team insisted they get paid this money before the election. They knew they needed to basically extort the money from Trump before the election where they thought it could do the most harm to him. So what's kind of lost in the noise of the Trump criminal charges is that the reason he's even being charged is because he himself was victimized by these women. And there was another woman and there was some doorman. They're all trying to get money out of him in exchange for keeping their mouth shut before the election. And if it sounds like blackmail, and it might be, even if it's not technically a blackmail, Trump is still a victim. These women didn't have sex against their will. And they each demanded money to keep their mouth shut and not go public. I mean, how gross is that? It's like Tiger Woods. It's like you, you can't have sex with women because you're afraid that they're going to run to the press. Tiger Woods has to have women that he goes on dates with sign uh, uh, non-disclosure agreements. It's pathetic because, you know, these women just want the money. They want the dough. That's the only thing they care about. The sex is their way to get the dough. How can any sane prosecutor think that it's fair to make Trump the bad guy here? I mean, he's plenty bad, but this isn't the case. 
And the charge of falsifying business records is almost exclusively brought as a misdemeanor, not a felony, as it, it was brought against Trump 34 times. In order for the falsification of business records misdemeanor to become a felony, the intent of the falsification has to be to commit or cover up another crime. The crime wasn't having sex with these porno stars or whatever the other one was. I don't know what she was. Some kind of hooker. I don't know, whatever. The, the crime, I guess, was some kind of campaign finance crime. It's not even mentioned in the 14-page or 13-page accompanying statement of facts. Should there be an accompaniment to the accompanying statement of facts that actually mentions the crime that he was trying to cover up? It's incredible. And in order to convict Trump of the felonies, the DA has to prove that the sole reason Trump made these hush money payments and hid the reason for paying them off, the women off, was to win the election. That he hid the source of the money paid to the porn star to commit a crime in order to win the election. Keep in mind, this is a guy who said that no publicity, bad publicity ever can hurt him. He said it. Quote, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters. He's right. His supporters are idiots. They don't care what he does. His supporters didn't care that he had dinner with a real Nazi. And then he praised the Nazi. No one cares that he had sex with a porn star. That probably helped him with his base. I don't think any of them even get laid. He couldn't have paid the blackmail money to save his marriage or perhaps protect his businesses or his brand. Nope. Had to be to win the election, according to Alvin Bragg. It's a very tough case for him to win Bragg, and he has to know it. In addition, they'll need 12 liberals on the jury because no Republican will give Bragg this win, is my mind. I, and I, I hate Trump. Hate him. But I can tell you this. If I was on that jury, I would vote to acquit in two seconds. Two seconds. I don't care what the other 11 jurors said. There is no way that I would vote to convict them. As I said, I think it's a long shot that Bragg gets this conviction. And keep in mind that Bragg, on day one of his tenure, claimed that he wouldn't be prosecuting his felonies cases in which someone walks into a bodega with a loaded weapon, sticks it in the face of the clerk, and robs it. Those cases would be now charged as misdemeanors. But Trump's misdemeanor offenses become felonies? As I said, normally uh, the charge of falsifying business records is the secondary charge and is even charged because the defendant falsified business records to cover up a larger crime. And I remember one case I had was a dentist who was charged with, excuse me, a, gastroenter a gastroenterologist who was charged with sexually assaulting a patient while she was um, you know, in twilight sedation. The anesthesia records were falsified, according to uh, the DA, same DA's office that's prosecuting Trump. They were uh, falsified to make it seem as if the victim couldn't possibly have been awake when the assault supposedly occurred, you know, to reduce her credibility, supposedly. And you know, so that was the crime. The crime of falsifying records was charged to cover up the larger crime of sexual assault. And naturally, because it's uh, Alvin Bragg's office, the DA's office, the uh, defendant was ultimately acquitted. Now, Bragg gave a press conference and claimed that his office routinely brings the felony falsifying business records charge. He claimed that his office did it 117 times in the 15 months he's been in office. What Bragg uh, didn't say is that his office and the DA's office before him brought the charges to top count just eight times in the past three and a half years. This is a partisan political hit job, period, period. 
and that's an embarrassment to America. And why did Bragg bring such a dumb case? He he has to know that he's going to have a difficult time getting a conviction. I think the reason he did it was to put him ahead of all the other grubby, slimy, liberal political hacks who want to emerge politically uh, from the uh, the filthy pond that is the Democratic Party. But I also think he wanted to ensure, and I swear, this is what I think, and I'm certain that he consulted Democratic Party leaders before he did this because he wants to make sure he's on the right side of them. He wanted to ensure that Trump would be the Republican candidate in the presidential election next year because any Democrat will beat him. And they know that Ron DeSantis isn't an idiot like Trump. He's accomplished a lot as governor and he could beat whatever mental invalid that the Democrats run. Bottom line, I loathe Trump. I loathe him. Loathe him. Loathe. But our country becomes a banana banana republic when the party in charge can eliminate its opposition with a sham criminal case this way. Period. End of story. And I fully hope that Republican district attorneys in red states, they should indict Hunter Biden. They should indict Joe Biden. At some point, this kind of shit will stop. I know two wrongs don't make a right, but I don't care. I don't care. It's the only way we're going to allow people to run for governor, excuse me, for president. And it's again, what I've said, if he was selling secrets, if he was involved in treason, different story, but he's paying hush money because he was victimized by this porn star. Come on. It's embarrassing. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. When I get back, I've got a a couple more issues to discuss. And then I want to discuss the sentencing I had of the Iranian woman involved in the plot to murder and kidnap the dissident Masi Alinejad in Brooklyn. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. I've got to briefly talk about the shootings in Louisville and Nashville recently. They had a couple of things in common, I noticed. Each shooter had been treated for mental health issues and surely were on some kind of medication. Secondly, they were both able to still legally purchase guns. I guess actually there's a third thing that they had in common is they were both liberals. But I'll say this again, and I've said it a lot. You're not eliminating guns in America. No one is getting their guns confiscated. There are more guns in America than people. There's like 400 million guns in America. So get that from the start. No one is is confiscating guns. Outlawing guns, it's just idiotic. The good guys will obey the laws and the bad guys will ignore it. They'll get the guns and they'll commit crimes. What I've been saying for years is that there needs to be a national database for anyone who is being treated for any kind of mental disorder, who's taking drugs for a mental disorder, any of it, all of it. This is an interesting statistic. Mass shootings in the United States between 1982 and the present. In situations in where there were prior signs of shooter of the shooter's mental health issues, 67 out of 142 shootings just about half, where there were prior signs of mental health problems. In only 17 out of the 142 shootings, was there no doubt that there were were no prior signs of mental health issues. So that is kind of a way to get rid of it. it looks like half of them. So why is it so difficult to have a national database of people with mental problems or 
uh, being, uh, I don't know, mental problems, mental issues, potential mental issues, people that are being medicated for it. it and it should be, this database should be used by anybody who's selling a gun. They do that when I get a gun in New York. They have to check with the FBI database to make sure that I can do it. Why can't they have another database with people that have mental issues? If you have a mental issue, no gun for you. Okay, no gun. If you're in a house with someone with a mental issue, no gun for you. It's too easy for crazy people to get them. And you're thinking, well, not all the mass shooters bought their guns legally. Some of them found the guns in their parents' house. Well, yeah. And, and like I said, if you have someone being treated for a mental disorder in your home, no gun for you. That's it. This trans, I know, look, I have not been paying attention to this and I apologize in advance if I say anything that is politically incorrect, but this trans Audrey Hale, and I, and I think, I, I don't know what to call her or him. Aiden Hale was also a name he or she or they or them use. I don't know the pronouns. I, I really don't know. And I don't, I don't care. I don't know if, if it's Audrey or Aiden was born a girl or a boy or what sex he or she was. Uh, I, I just, or what sex he or she was when they did the shooting. I don't know. And I don't care. I don't really understand it. I don't understand the pronouns. Uh, this thing, I'm going to call it thing. Is that a pronoun thing? No, it's a noun. It's a noun murdered six people and three of them were kids. I don't know if, if she, they, or them, or it had a penis or if born with a penis, had it removed. I don't know if he or she or they or them had a penis stapled on. I don't know, and I just don't care. I don't pay attention to it. I don't get that into it. I'm fine with trans people the same way I'm, I'm for gays. I mean, I'm for the gays. I've always been for the gays. And I don't mind if people want to change their sex. Do whatever the fuck it is you want. But just don't harm me or anyone else. And don't allow children to do this kind of irreversible act on their body in the name of trans anything. Unless they have like rock solid proof that their lives are in danger without it. I think that's what the law that West Virginia just passed. West Virginia, of all places, actually made sense. We don't let people under 21 drink alcohol. We shouldn't let them cut off their junk either. It's just irreversible. You cut it off. You're not getting it back. As for this recent trend, the very angry, very violent trans people, I'll say this. Imagine coming to America from another country. You're coming for the American dream. You get here. America is the land of opportunity, the land of milk and honey. You work hard seven days a week and you build a successful life for yourself. And you owe it all to America. The greatest place on earth where anyone can be anything as long as they're willing to work. And then you see these people mutilating themselves and insisting upon competing as women, even though some of them haven't even had any surgery. They've just taken some hormones or just identified as a woman. And they're getting violent if you don't give them what they want. You have to be thinking, if you're that immigrant, that this country has gone straight to hell. China is sending spy balloons into our country repeatedly. Iran is killing our soldiers overseas and trying to kill Americans on our soil. And we're being split apart, not for race this time as we were a couple of years ago, but now a divide between people who want to change their sex and people who just don't want it thrown in their faces every day. And I thought about this the other night. 
Remember during the 70s, during the Olympics, the women who competed for East Germany? East Germany was just some, it was just a lame Olympic uh, country. They weren't good at the Olympics. West Germany was better. That was before Germany was combined and the Berlin Wall came down. The East German swimming team, they won all these gold medals and they all looked like gorillas. They were all taking steroids. People in America were outraged that these women were clearly cheating and they weren't stripped of their medals, and they still haven't been. That was bad. But now we have dudes who sucked at swimming, suddenly identifying as women, and they're crushing all the female swimmers. It's not just that sport. It's like every sport. They want to play in every sport, and they're winning in all of them. But that's okay. You don't even have to transition anymore, as I said. Just say you're a girl and go to the girls' bathroom and remember uh, to squat. Don't stand up when you pee. We're sacrificing the women in our country on the altar of political correctness for trans people. It's obscene. Do what you want with your penis, but don't harm anyone else. And this is all we seem to care about these days in America. Just another insane leftist obsession. When China drops an EMP on America, boy, you're going to be concerned about shit beyond the... These fucking pronouns, proper pronouns. And you're thinking, well, of course, why would China drop an EMP on our country? Well, why would China kill over a million Americans with their virus that they created? Anyway, I digress. I want to talk about Nelly Bahadora for this is the case that I had the sentencing for about a week and a half ago. This case, it was a July 1, 2021 arrest. And I saw it in the media, a a case in which a very well-known Iranian dissident, a critic of Iran's terror regime, was nearly kidnapped in Brooklyn in a conspiracy between various Iranian intelligence officers and and operatives. The victim was a woman named, I mentioned it before, Masi Alenejad. And if you're a typical American, you have no idea who she is. But if you're up on what is happening in Iran since the 1979 revolution, you know who Masi is. She's that crazy-haired woman, she's got a daisy in her hair, who defied the regime, first as a reporter in Iran, and then when she escaped Iran in 2009, and she hasn't been back, hasn't been able to see her family since then. She became a ferocious critic of the terror regime, and through social media brought the abuses on women in Iran to the public consciousness. She speaks out about the compulsory head coverings in Iran, and doesn't talk just about the abuse of women there, but all the people of Iran. She has almost 9 million followers on Instagram and is even mentioned by Iran's terror leader, the Ayatollah, in speeches. She posts a lot on Instagram, a lot. But she's hugely important because people need to understand how utterly depraved and evil this regime is. And the case was crazy when I read about it in the papers. It's less than two years ago. The Iranian terrorist managed to get a payment to a private investigator in Brooklyn to spy on Masi and her family, take pictures, record their comings and goings, and the investigator was lied to. He wasn't told that, you know, we're Iranian terrorists and we want to kidnap and kill this woman. He was hired uh, remotely and he thought he was tracking down someone who owed a debt to the people that were paying him. The plot, the actual plot involved kidnapping Miss Alinejad and ferrying her back to an ally in, in South America where she could be taken to Iran to presumably be imprisoned and or killed. They had already arrested and jailed one of her brothers to send a message to her. 
They already had tried to get her relatives to lure her to another country to meet so they could kidnap her there. It was harder in America. They actually required a little bit of an effort. It's utterly bonkers the lengths that they'll go to to silence a dissident. And even more bonkers that we're not at all concerned about it in America. They're not concerned about, excuse me, about America retaliating. They don't care, especially while Joe Biden has been in office. In this case, there were numerous Iranian terrorists charged in the plot. Criminally, they were charged in the indictment. But all of them were in Iran, safe, unable to be prosecuted by our government. One person, one, who unwittingly helped in the plot was arrested, a California Iranian woman named Nilafar Bahadurafar, known as Nelly. She was the only defendant who would face these charges, the smallest person in the case. And I got to tell you, the balls of Iran the Muslim terror state, to come into our country and try to kill Americans. When I read about this in the media, it made me sick again that all we're doing in response is sanctioning them because the sanctions clearly aren't working. How could you feel good about that? They're not working because they've been doing this coming into our country and trying to kill people for years. In 2011, they tried to kill the Saudi ambassador in a D.C. restaurant in the middle of the day. And at the same time, they uh, tried to bomb the Saudi and Israeli embassies in D.C. And that's just one of the many terror attacks inside America that they've tried. And there have been many. In other countries, they drove a truck filled with bombs into a Jewish center in Argentina in 1994, killed 85 people. This is still the largest terror attack in Argentina, on Argentina's soil. Why Argentina? Well, because Argentina has the greatest population of Jews in South America. And the center had nothing to do with Israel. This wasn't a political statement. They just hate Jews, period. And the world did nothing in response. Nobody even went to jail for this. And I have been a strident supporter of nuking Iran for decades. And I'm not, I'm actually not kidding. Had we nuked Iran decades ago, okay, maybe not nuked or otherwise remove their terror regime, there would have been a reduction of wars all over the world, as Iran is the world's worst global sponsor of terror, and every day is either arming its proxies in wars uh, or terrorism, or trying to overthrow governments. But there are ways to remove this cancerous regime beyond just sanctions, because they're not working. It should have been done the day after our hostages were released in 1981. I'm sure the reason why it wasn't was because we probably made some deal with Iran to release those hostages. But if you're too young to know what I'm talking about, Google uh, the phrase Iran hostage crisis. As someone who is also a very big supporter of Israel, my hatred of Iran stems from that. Okay, Iran presently arms the Hamas and Islamic Jihad terrorists in the Gaza Strip, which is below Israel. And they also arm the Hezbollah terrorists in Lebanon, uh, which is above Israel's northern border. These terror entities have launched thousands of rockets into Israel, into civilian areas. They don't care. They've uh, gone into Israel. They've cut the throats of babies, and then they've had celebrations in the street after. They cut the throat of a four-month-old baby, and they're passing out candy to the other savages. This is what they do. They've killed countless Israelis. And if Iran didn't exist, I don't know how long these terror groups would exist. Any sane American should want the terror regime gone for reasons having nothing to do with Israel too. They torture their citizens. Liberals care about that, right? 
They abuse women. They have a morality police walking around the streets looking for women whose heads aren't covered. They either want to arrest them or beat them in the street right then and there. They routinely execute gays. They arrest and kill protesters. They don't let people leave the country. Women have no rights. Minorities have no rights. Oh, and they're trying to make a nuclear bomb. I've talked about my history of hating this terror regime in other podcasts. How when our hostages were taken in 1979, I guess I was 14 then, I took to wearing two buttons. Now, if you're from New Jersey, New York, you know what I'm talking about. Everybody had one of those knit caps that they wore with their, uh, their winter ski jacket to school. I took to wearing two buttons. I got them from Spencer Gifts. That was like a novelty gift store in the Woodbridge Mall in New Jersey. One of the uh, buttons was a brown button with white block letters that said fart on Iran. The other was a black button with white block letters that said bomb Iran. Everyone back then was shocked at what the Iranian terrorists did to our diplomats. They kidnapped 52 of them and held them for 444 days. I didn't have to look that up. It's like a zillion years later, and I still remember. It was incredibly frustrating as an American and, and as a kid to watch this unfold. To watch Americans being paraded before cameras, blindfolded and abused. Naturally, of course, we had a worthless leftist president in office, Jimmy Carter, who failed in every effort to bring our hostages home. And on the day that Ronald Reagan was inaugurated, the hostages were released. So when I read about the arrest, back to the case, when I read about uh, the arrest of the one person who was tangentially involved in the plot to kidnap Miss Alinejad, that's the Iranian dissident who lives in Brooklyn, if you're paying attention. I wanted in the case bad. I wanted in the case bad because this was stuff that I was interested in. And interestingly, as I said, the one person arrested, this California woman of Iranian descent, was not involved in the plot to kidnap Ms. Alinejad. She was charged with assisting one of the other terrorists with getting around the financial sanctions placed on Iran. But specifically, she did make the $670 payment to the private investigator for the terrorists because the terrorists couldn't do it themselves. They needed somebody in America to get around the sanctions. She was also charged with helping him navigate his way around sanctions for years, letting him be on her credit card so he could make charges and even offering to act as a straw man for him to purchase a business in America. So it wasn't, it was innocent with regard to the um, kidnapping plot. She didn't know about it, but she certainly knew about that she was helping somebody evade sanctions who should not be. Uh, having any access to the financial system in America, a terrorist. But again, this was a case that I really wanted badly. And, and this is one of the great things about my job and my career, one of the reasons why I love it. I've been lucky enough to get cases with huge national and sometimes global implications, whether it's representing John Gotti Jr. at trial, representing the brother of uh, the fugitive OneCoin founder, Ruja Ignatova, one of the biggest uh, cryptocurrency frauds ever, representing Chapo Guzman at trial. And look, I'm being modest. I, I didn't get this career by luck. No one ever helped me. No one ever gave me a job when I started. I had to get it myself. Everything I have from this profession, I earned from the very bottom rung on the ladder. So I thought, when I read about it in the paper, that this is the case that is really for me. But alas, you don't always get everything you wish for. There have been plenty of cases I've wanted that didn't come my way. And every time I don't get the case, I'm shocked that I don't get them because I know that I'll do better on it than who they hired. Now, 
you, you're listening to this and you're thinking, I sound like I'm delusional. Well, this is how you do this kind of work for a living. You've got to be delusional to some degree. A lot of your clients are guilty and you've got to convince a jury that they're not. But within weeks of me reading about that case, the gods answered and I received a call from someone connected to Ms. Baddorf for to represent her. And I was thrilled. I was thrilled. I mean, I was really into this case. And the reason why this case is interesting enough to discuss on a podcast is not just because of what was charged, but to demonstrate the heartbreak of this work sometimes. I desperately wanted to help Nellie. That's what her, her name in America is now. She's a single mother of, of a now 20-year-old boy who fled Iran when she was about 19. She had been born before the revolution in Iran, and she was about five years old when Iran changed overnight from a modern place of freedom, a secular place, a place where girls could walk around wearing skirts with their hair uncovered, listening to music. The next day, they're all being forced to cover every inch of their body, wear a hijab over their head, or risk being arrested by this new Iranian terror regime, their morality police, which combed the streets looking for immodest women. When she was 10 years old, Nellie, she attended a wedding, and there was dancing there because that's what people do at weddings. At the end of the wedding, everyone was arrested. You're not allowed to dance with men, people of the opposite sex, unless you're married to them. She was 10 years old and she was arrested. She finally managed to escape Iran and move to Canada, where at 19, she entered into an arranged marriage with a Muslim fundamentalist who beat her senseless if she dared to leave the home uncovered. He threw her down the steps. She basically swapped one prison for another. She had a child with him, and after being abused long enough, she decided to escape again, this time to America, and to take her young son. Her maniac husband went to her family and demanded that they make Nellie return the son who he had abused as well. How crazy is this? This is the mindset of the Muslim fundamentalist. So Nellie raised her son alone and managed to survive in California, and she settled into a country, and excuse me, into a community with other Iranians who had fled the regime, expats. She struggled, but she persevered. She was clearly manipulated by the Iranian intelligence operative who had her send money to the private investigator. She even put the name of the operative on the PayPal memo because she didn't know what she was doing was wrong. She had no idea it was going to lead to someone being kidnapped. And there was nothing in her email and her texts or WhatsApp messages between her and, and uh, this uh, terrorist where it mentioned that she had any knowledge of the plot, which is why she wasn't charged with it by the government. They just had no evidence. And as you can imagine, the average person reading about her arrest presumed she was involved in the kidnapping attempt. And immediately her place in the Iranian community in California was over. She was, for the most part, cast out. The newspaper articles about her arrest were put in the elevator in her apartment building. She was fired from her job. She also had a sister and a niece that are left in Iran. And as you can imagine, they're not exactly safe after Nellie was arrested. So she was getting it from both sides. The Iranian terror regime surely considered her a problem with her, her a problem because of her arrest. And her Iranian expat community, they cast her out. She was alone. She was the face of this horrible kidnapping case. And yet she'd be the only one punished for it, even though she wasn't charged with knowing about the plot even. It's horrible. I had really hoped that there would be some empathy for her by the government and also by the female judge who had the case. 
And I had so much, uh, the reason I wanted the case so badly is I had so much to say about the Iranian terror regime that needed to be said to help Nelly, but also it needed to be said. While the case was going on, it's only, it's been less than two years. Naturally, Iran's terrorism continued. In July of last year, a man was caught outside Ms. Alinejad's home with a loaded AK-47 rifle in an attempt to murder her. Three men were arrested. This is for the latest Iranian terror plot against Masi Alinejad. While our case was ongoing, they were arrested. They don't care. They simply are not deterred. In addition, last August, plots to kill John Bolton and Mike Pompeo by Iran were also revealed. A member of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards offered 300000 for killing Bolton and a million for killing Pompeo. It's all there in black and white. An indictment followed, but of course, the Iranian terrorist involved in this is safe and is not in custody. And you'd think that at some point, the Democrats in charge would have had enough of Iran's terrorism on our own soil. Incredibly, Biden's administration has not even put Iran's terror wing, the Revolutionary Guard, on the terror list. So why should Iran stop their terrorism on our soil? There's no downside to it. The moment any of these plots were uncovered, we should have attacked Iran. That's it. But they know now, This the status quo is, they terrorize us, they kill us, and we give a little tit for tat for Joe Biden. As crazy as Trump was, as bad of a president... As he was, he did a lot of things right. He scared the shit out of the Iranians. They didn't pull this stuff when he was in office. Something to be said about that. You can hate him because he exhausted you, but his policies were better than Biden's. Biden doesn't do shit. He just is like, no, we don't want to upset the Iranians. These were not rogue terror acts. The, the, the plots against Bolton and Pompeo, the plots against Masi Alinejad, the plot to kill the Saudi ambassador and bomb the Saudi and Israeli embassies, these were state-sponsored attacks. They were declarations of war. We should have attacked them and ended this nightmare that began in 1979 in Iran. So the upside of the case for me personally was the chance to actually say these things publicly, not just in a podcast, but an open court with the world watching, with the Iranian terror regime watching what a gift it was and as an aside you'll find this interesting i can tell who listens to my podcasts there's a way to see what country the downloads are from the great bulk of my podcast listeners are americans of course it is you know what second you know what country is second the second most listenership the islamic republic of iran <sighs> In exchange for a guilty plea to assisting the Iranian operative in evading financial sanctions, the government agreed to drop certain charges against Nelly, including the bank and wire fraud charges and money laundering. But she still faced an advisory sentencing guideline range of 46 to 57 months. That's just a advisory range. Judges can go below that, and they routinely do. Sometimes they don't, depending on the seriousness of the case or a need to make a point to the defendant. Maybe he's been arrested too many times. Or for general deterrence purposes, if the case is that bad. But I almost never get a sentence that's it's even within the guidelines. And on the morning of the sentencing a week ago Friday, I realized that I hadn't spent more time preparing for a sentencing in years. I overprepared. And there were really no legal issues to fight. But I wanted to do all that I could to humanize Nellie 
although it really wasn't hard. She's a very kind and person. She's a great mother. What I learned the day of the sentencing, before the sentencing, was that her son, who's 20 years old now, wants to be a criminal defense attorney. And I mentioned that in court to the judge at the sentencing, and I got choked up, for real. I also wanted to talk about the dangers of Iran. On the day I submitted my sentencing memorandum on behalf of Nelly, Iranian operatives were arrested in Greece trying to bomb a Jewish center. In a crowded area, in the middle of the day, having nothing to do with Israel, just Jews. The day before the sentencing, like two weeks later, Iranian operatives were arrested in Bahrain trying to overthrow that government. I felt it important to make the judge understand how purely evil and murderous this regime was and why Nelly should not be bearing the brunt of the punishment in this case. It's not right. You can't go after Iran, you go after her? Well, maybe go after Iran. And as I walked into the courthouse, who did I see standing in the security line before they go through the magnetometer? Masi Alinejad, surrounded by a group of people. She was there to give a victim impact statement, even though my client, as I said, had no knowledge of the plot to kidnap her. But I felt it was appropriate regardless because Nelly had assisted the, the Iranian intelligence operatives in getting around the financial sanctions against them, and she had unwittingly helped them in the plot against Masi. Naturally, to uh, Masi Alinejad, I was the enemy. I was representing a person involved in nearly getting her killed. You can understand why she would want nothing to do with me. And, and, I, and as I saw her in the security line, this is a true story. I'm embarrassed that I'm actually, I'm actually stating this. My, my cousin's uh, niece works for me, and she came to watch the, uh, the sentencing. And she... You know, she's a kid. She has no idea who Masi Alinejad is. And as I see them in the line, I see that she's standing right next to Masi. Brooke, that's her name. I see Brooke and I wave to her. But the truth is I was really waving to Masi, trying to get her attention. <laughs> I passed it off as I was waving to Brooke as Brooke <clears throat> waved back. The truth is I was really excited. Some people get excited to see movie stars and baseball players. I got excited to see uh, the great Iranian dissident, Masi Alinejad. When she was seated in the courtroom gallery, she came in with a group of, of large people around her. I said, fuck it. I walked up to her. I mean, I was, I'm a fan. I walked up to her through the throng. I, I walked in between them and I introduced myself. I told her that I was a big supporter of hers, regardless of the fact that I was representing Nellie right now, about to be sentenced. And she seemed surprised. She had a look on her face, but she was gracious and kind. I mean, I don't know what she was thinking in her head, but she was gracious and kind. She gave her victim impact statement in court to the judge, to the country, to the world. And that was before I spoke. And it was tough to get up after her words. The impact of the murder plots against her was enormous. She was forced to leave her home in Brooklyn and is living in a series of safe houses with her husband and stepchildren. She wakes up in strange places in these safe houses and sometimes thinks that she's back in Iran, kidnapped. It was horrifying to listen to. To me, she's a hero. No one on earth is a more visible and effective voice against the Iranian terror regime than Masi Alinejad. Incredibly, she's not well known in America because Americans are idiots who don't know what's going on in the world. But she has millions of followers, as I said, on Instagram and Twitter. The world is watching her. Iran, 
the imprisoned people of Iran are watching her, which is why they want her dead. And in my remarks to the judge, I went through the history of the Iranian terror regime, how dangerous they are, had they used people in America to commit their crimes. I felt it important that the judge knew that Nellie isn't safe after being arrested in the case, that the Iranian terror regime would surely see her as a potential problem. And I said these words in open court, and I'm quoting from the transcript discussing the recent protests in Iran, quote, this is a terror regime that has killed, tortured, and imprisoned so many innocent Iranians just in the past few months because a 22-year-old Kurdish Iranian woman named Masha Amini was wearing a loose head covering. And for that, she needed to be beaten to death by Iran's morality police. Since then, there have been protests in the street and the world has watched in horror as the brutal tactics employed to crush it such as murder in the streets, arrest with no trials, torture, rape, electrocutions, removal of nails. If you simply dance in the street in Iran, you're attacked by their morality police. You'd think by now Iran's terrorist leaders would want to reach an accommodation with the people who were rioting and protesting for months? No. Iran's chief justice warned a week ago that women who do not cover their heads in public, quote, will be punished and prosecuted without mercy. This evil regime has lately taken to poisoning young schoolgirls to prevent them from protesting. Thousands of young Iranian girls have been poisoned already. Look, I wanted this to get out. I wanted to speak to the Iranian terror regime. And reporters asked me after, aren't you afraid they're going to kill you? I'm not afraid. Everybody's got to die. It's all right. I've lived a long time. If they're going to come and kill me, I'm not going to go down easy. But I'm not going to be silent because I'm afraid. For God's sake, I'm a criminal defense lawyer. I also pointed out to the judge that it would be unsafe to saddle Nelly with a severe sentence just because the terrorists who tried to kidnap Mossy were in Iran, safe from the long arm of American law. You can't make her pay for the sins of these people that were much more culpable. I discussed her family and her son who wrote the most glowing letter about her. I said the truth. I, I hope my sons would write such a letter about me. And I mentioned that if she went to prison, she'd be left, he'd be left, the son, to his own devices. And he's 20 years old. And I discussed how Nelly was manipulated by the Iranian terror operative, a friend of the family, who for some reason she felt obligated to obey. And I mentioned to the judge how, and I'm going to go quote, quote my mark, remarks from the sentencing, quote, She's not the typical defendant who comes before you. She's someone who was shaped by the Iranian terror regime and how they treated girls and women as she grew up before she could finally escape. And as she said in the pre-sentence interview, she got interviewed before the sentencing. You know, they create a pre-sentence report, probation does, for the judge. As she said in her pre-sentence interview in her culture, you just, quote, take what men do and don't report anything. And... I discussed her difficult life, and, and I'm going to quote again from the transcript from the sentencing. Quote, the defendant finally escaped Iran and moved to Canada, but just because she wanted to escape Iran didn't mean that she escaped her upbringing. She entered into an arranged marriage at 19, was badly abused by her husband, an Islamic fundamentalist. She was beaten, not permitted to leave her, her, the house uncovered at all if she was allowed to leave. She was thrown downstairs, as she said, in her culture, you just take what men do and you don't report anything. And then I discussed how impossible to really understand why she would have allowed herself to be manipulated by this Iranian intelligence operative. 
the old family friend. And again, I'm quoting from my remarks in open court. Quote, did she feel morally obligated to help this authority figure? Was she afraid not to help him? I suppose a combination of all of it. I don't know what we as Americans can fully grasp in her motivation. But I also don't fully understand why a 19-year-old adult would enter into an arranged marriage with a violent fundamentalist lunatic. In the end, the judge spoke a lot more about the reasons for her sentencing than she would in a, in a regular sense. We were all speaking to the world. That's why the judge didn't treat it as a regular sentencing. Not just the people in the courtroom were listening. And she gave Nellie 48 months in prison, a sentence that was not even at the very bottom of the sentencing guidelines. And then I was crushed. I wish I could say that I was shocked, but I wasn't. Because clearly she felt or she felt it was important to send that message. The message to who? As I said in court, the idea that a stiff sentence here will deter anyone associated with the cancerous terror regime of Iran is ludicrous. Only bombs will deter them. It was all very frustrating all around for me. The last time I had even gotten a sentence within the sentencing guidelines and not below had been years and years. And it was for a defendant who had the worst criminal history I had ever seen. And the judge felt the need to convince him that he needed to stop his life of crime. So Nellie was punished in order to send a message to Iran, a message that will surely be heard, but ignored again. And as I said, I was shaken by this and I, I felt horribly guilty. Like, was there something I could have done differently? I just couldn't think of anything. And a week later, just this past Friday, I had another federal sentencing, this time a large fraud case in which a wealthy, educated American used poor illegal immigrants to help him commit a credit card scheme, which netted him millions of dollars, and the poor illegals got almost nothing. And I did this sentencing the morning after my cat woke me up and puked on me. Yeah, while well, I slept. That was a tough night's sleep. I went in there with not much sleep. This fellow's sentencing guidelines range was 168 to 210 months. And the judge gave him 42 months and a recommendation for a drug program. He'll be out of jail in 18 months. There was no international press there for the sentence. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Thanks for tuning in. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, beyondthelegallimit.com. I've gotten your emails. I've got to write some people back. I apologize for the delay. Thank you for tuning in, and I'll see you next week.